Welcome to Women's Place. If you like this podcast, here's another one you should check out. Hello, my name is Talia Smith, the host of Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast. On our show, we talk to historians, artists, podcasters, and creators from all around the world about the stories that impact our lives. Join us for Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast, season three, streaming on all platforms, April 2nd. You can find us at a storytelling podcast on Instagram for more information. to another episode of Women's Place Podcast. I'm Meredith Bush, your host, and I'm so excited for this episode. Season two is all about women's organizations. And today we're talking about abolitionist women. In the last episode, we discussed some of the earliest aid, relief, benevolence, and missionary organizations founded by women. In this episode, we'll look at the very foundations of the American women's movements, abolitionist activism. Let's start by acknowledging some of the uglier parts of American women's history. Race has caused a lot of turmoil in the American women's movement, pitting women against women along racial lines. Specifically, in the early days, Elizabeth Cady Stanton prioritized her women's rights efforts and her fight for universal suffrage over the ratification of the 15th Amendment that again excluded women. She made some racist comments speaking out against the 15th Amendment, and Frederick Douglass, in turn, spoke out against her rhetoric. This happened. I'm not here to defend her. However, it is so important that we remember that Stanton played a crucial role in the advancement of women. Yes, particularly white women, but also eventually all women. Stanton's number one goal was universal suffrage, and she meant universal. Unfortunately, even today, all women do not share equitable experiences with each other, depending on race, class, faith, and other factors. The roots of the American women's movement are inextricably linked with abolitionist work, though, and anti-slavery movement. So, we should do our best to support and emphasize intersectional movements from now on, learning from the struggles of the past. We should embrace the history, understanding that it is painful for many and then learn from it. The most important part about ugly history is that we learn from it. We are more powerful united, and that's the entire theme of this season, discussing women's organizations, unity. So, as we go back to the beginning, it all began at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1840, where Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton first met. Let's go back a little bit further than that, to talk about how these two women came to be at the anti-slavery convention in the first place. England had had abolition societies for, with hundreds of female subscribers since the late 1700s. Mary Burkett was one of them, and she created a card with a poem entitled A Poem on the African Slave Trade. Women also led the charge in the sugar boycotts of the 1790s. British women were generally accepted in this sphere outside the home, and American women followed suit. 
1833, 18 women founded the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. Among those women were Mary, Mary Ann McClintock, uh, Margaretta Fortin, Charlotte Fortin, Sarah, and Harriet Fortin. Eventually, others like Lucretia Mott and the Grimke sisters also joined this organization. It was formed as a local chapter affiliated with the American Anti-Slavery Society, which obviously accepted the membership of women, even when women's sphere was the home, according to common ideology. Between the 1833 founding and 1870, when the organization dissolved after the passing of the 14th and 15th Amendments, women took massive action, and the organization made a big difference for themselves and for those suffering in slavery and outside of it. In the 1830s, they focused on circulating anti-slavery petitions, holding public meetings, fundraising, and funding community support for free blacks. When we think about most organizations and causes, it typically begins with raising awareness of a problem and raising money to fight said problem. These women did exactly that. Then, from the mid-1830s to 1850, the organization petitioned the Philadelphia State Legislature and Congress on numerous occasions. They pressed the Pennsylvania legislature to allow jury trials for suspected fugitive slaves. They lobbied Congress to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia and prohibit the interstate slave trade. Black female leaders in the organization served on committees that drove these efforts. Because women couldn't vote, these kinds of petitions were one of few political expressions that women could exert. They met in homes and then in their neighborhoods. They created huge grassroots propaganda campaigns. They went door to door, which challenged gender norms, but also shifted the question of slavery from a moral one to a political one. They exerted so much power. They're credited in large part with affecting the passing of the gag rule in the U.S. House of Representatives in order to squash their petitions. These women were a thorn in the side of the legislatures fighting for their abolitionist cause. As a result of the gag rule, the refusal of Congress to consider their petitions, they shifted their strategies in the 1840s. And, you know, as the group matured, it reduced its efforts to circulate petitions and instead devoted more time to fundraising. They had an annual fair where handcrafted items like needlework with abolitionist inscriptions and anti-slavery publications were sold. Uh, There was one pamphlet in particular called the Anti-Slavery Alphabet, that was sold at the 1846 Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Fair. Um, These kinds of coordinated activities also led to the organizing of sewing circles. By the 1850s, fairs were, were a huge occasion for them, and they sold, not only did they sell things, they also featured speeches by well-known abolitionists. They drew large audiences who paid admission fees. And the society fundraised enough to secure power and influence in the state anti-slavery society. Through the whole period, this women's organization provided a large proportion of all funds donated to the state society in general. And from 1844 to 1849, they covered 20% of the state anti-slavery society budget and accounted for 31 to 45% of donations. Women were able to keep a high profile and assert their authority and leadership roles, even within the statewide abolitionist movement. This is where women started to come out of their shells. By financially supporting free black communities, they also made a huge difference. 
Uh, this was primarily led by the black female membership. They actually supported Sarah Douglas's School for Free Black Girls. And according to scientist Gail T. Tate in her book called Unknown Tongues, Black Women's Political Activism in the Antebellum Era from 1830 to 1860, the society continued its financial support with annual contributions throughout the, the 1840s. She mentions the Fortin women's leadership and support and led to generous contributions to the school. That demonstrated the, the, the great efforts of black women in this movement. They were able to do so much and should be an inspiration for the white women in that same movement. In this organization, white and black women tended to split on what they thought were the important things for the association to do. This caused the kinds of rifts that I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast, and it undermines their own efficacy as women. And so you'll see the same thing play out in the women's movement over and over again when it comes to civil rights, when it came to suffrage, um, because black women weren't granted suffrage alongside white women. These same kinds of things you, you start to see over and over again people prioritizing things that benefit themselves. That said, because women set, played such a pertinent role in the abolitionist movement, both white and black members of this society supported the idea of granting women the right to vote and to perform traditionally male roles like speaking in public. These kinds of sparks would ignite that suffrage movement. And so... Um, Similarly, Ira V. Brown identifies the women of this organization as playing a key role in the development of American feminism, or what she labels as the cradle of feminism. And I tend to think similarly that abolitionist movements in the United States were the fertile ground for women to build themselves out of. And in that sense, there are other voices also who will, will say that it's white women, you know, building themselves up on the shoulders of more black Americans, which isn't exactly untrue, but I do think it defeats a lot of the purpose of, of these kinds of movements, which is to unify people together with shared common goals. And I think that that's what we need to look at as people today is how can we do this better? How can we be better? How can we take the best from their organization and apply it now, leaving the worst? Philadelphia wasn't the only home to an anti-slavery society. There was also the Female Anti-Slavery Society of Salem, which was founded in 1832. This society was comprised of entirely African-American women against uh, colonization. Their platform was anti-colonization. Similarly, there was a ladies' New York City anti-slavery society. Boston also had the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. And unfortunately, as we saw with the Philadelphia Society and um, this whole division along, along race, the, in 1840, the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society was dissolved because of differences in beliefs. and. So we start to see this really common thread 
people cared about this effort, but for different reasons, and couldn't unite themselves. Philadelphia is the standout because they actually did make really crucial differences and really carved a place for women in American society. Now that we've talked about these groups, let's loop back to how this involvement brought Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton to London for the World Anti-Slavery Convention. In 1840, these efforts of female anti-slavery societies had been going on for a number of years. And as women who were involved in that effort, Stanton and Mott, who were of means, went to London for the anti-slavery convention. Unfortunately, that anti-slavery convention was not open to female participation. They separated women in a different area behind a screen and did not permit them to vote or participate in any of the floor motions or discussions. This united Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton on a different topic. Women's rights. So, as they were excluded, they found that they wanted to make a difference. They couldn't. And they were siphoned off into their own, sequestered into their own area. And this sparked a friendship and a partnership that would result in, eight years later, the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention in New York. This theme also existed in the United States. And in 1838, uh, the um, Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women was also disrupted because it was improper for women to be participating. Let's talk about it a little bit. The Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society hosted the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women in 1838 at Pennsylvania Hall. The hall was filled with people. People even gathered outside. They surrounded the hall. It was large and in many ways considered promiscuous because both men and women were going to address the audience. It was considered improper for women to address audiences of both sexes, and um, the meeting drew the attention of antagonists who um, rioted outside of the hall. The history of Pennsylvania Hall says that frequent volleys of stones were thrown against the windows and some disorganizers within made repeated efforts to frighten the audience. So the next day, not the first day of their convention, but the next day they they met and they started to address, to, to give an address, arguing in favor of women's public involvement in the anti-slavery movement. And this is a, this is a quote from, from that convention saying, we are told that it is not within the province of women to discuss the subject of slavery, that it is a political question and we are stepping out of our sphere when we take part in its discussion. May we not permit a thought to stray beyond the narrow limits of our own family circle and of the present hour? This, this fired people up, not only for the abolitionist cause, but for the participation of women in issues that affect them, both emotionally and 
logistically in life. The women argued that they were obliged to, quote, protect our colored sisters while going out by taking each one of them by the arm. This was an interracial event. It was both genders, and it was radical in many ways. Later on that day, Pennsylvania Hall was burned down. These kinds of instances of aggression and violence uh, weren't uncommon when women stepped out of their sphere, especially with racially mixed groups um, like that particular one. Thankfully, not all women were dissuaded from this cause, and the abolitionist movement fostered and cultivated a lot of really strong, influential women. And so I wanted to touch on some of those women, who they are. You can look them up some more. I think that they could be very inspiring for all of us as we look back to the women's rights movement and look forward to the future of what it means to be a woman in this world where, you know, women are still not paid equally to men and um, where that's even exaggerated more along racial lines. These kinds of misogyny, all these things are still true today. So we can really draw inspiration from what these women did and who they were. So one of them was Marianne Shad Carey. Um, she was born in 1823, and she was born to free African Americans in Delaware when it was still a slave state. Marianne Shad Carey became an activist, a teacher, a writer, and a lawyer. And the Shad family participated in the Underground Railroad, helping those enslaved escape to freedom. When the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850, though, making it legal for escaped slaves living in free states to be returned to enslavement, Carrie escaped to Ontario, Canada. In Canada, that's where she and her husband opened an integrated school for black and white children. They also did work to promote immigration to Canada for black persons living in freedom to prevent being um, sent back into slavery. When her husband passed, um, she moved back to the United States, helping recruit soldiers for the Union Army. Um, one other thing she had done in Canada, which I think is really monumental for this time, is that she had been a journalist for the Provincial Freeman, a weekly newspaper um, that publicized the successes of black people living in freedom in Canada. Being able to not only have a voice, but publish it and share it with others, this was really powerful at the time. Journalism was a, a man's field. You know, writing novels or whatever women did, but um, in those eight, the 1850s, it's really incredible that she was able to effectively use her voice. After the Civil War, she was in the first class at Howard University Law School and became an activist and writer for another local African-American newspaper in Washington, D.C., and she was one of the first black women to complete a law degree. She was a founder of the Colored Women's Progressive Franchise Association and became involved in the National Women's Suffrage Association. You see these continued links of social justice efforts 
from abolitionist efforts to women's rights. Another um, set of women that were really influential were the Fortin sisters, and I talked about them a bit, but there are three of them who who um, really participated. The Fortin family was a multi-generational African-American family with roots dating to the founding of Philadelphia. These sisters that we're going to talk about are Margareta, Harriet, and Sarah. They were wealthy, educated, and prominent in the country and in society. The, the family used their wealth and influence to establish several anti-slavery and African-American societies, like, as I mentioned before, the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. Some members of the, those societies and of their family were conductors for the Underground Railroad. Margareta was an abolitionist and a suffragist. She never married, choosing to dedicate her life to education, and she opened her own school in 1850, very similar to um, Shad Carey. She campaigned for women's rights and equality and social reform. She toured with suffrage groups, gave speeches, and worked really hard on those petition drives that we talked about. Um, let's see. Who else? Harriet was a staunch abolitionist also, and she married Robert Purvis, a member of another prominent and abolitionist family. So they had eight children, but despite all of the duties that that must have imposed on Harriet, she, it didn't stop her from campaigning for the anti-slavery movement. She attended conventions with her husband and was an active participant. She also later became a suffragist and lectured on black suffrage. Harriet and Robert were conductors of the Underground Railroad. Their house was a safe haven, and they entertained other leading abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and John Greenleaf Whittier. Together, they continued to you know, help the enslaved and the freed to live better lives. So Sarah Fortin was the last of the sisters I wanted to talk about, and she was also a writer, activist, and abolitionist. She married Joseph Purvis, her sister's husband's brother, and they had three children. They, um, they continued to work with his family in the anti-slavery movement, and along with her sisters, she was a member of the Female Literary Association a Philadelphia-based African-American women's group founded in 1831, and they aimed for improvement in moral and literary pursuits. Her poetry was popular, and um, she also wrote for the Liberator um, magazine uh, under a pseudonym. This family fostered attributes in those young women that, that many did not. They were educated. They were ambitious. And they united with other women to effect change. They also found feminist husbands, which is really incredible and is still something we should think about today. Let's talk about some Quakers. So Elizabeth Margaret Chandler was um, a white Quaker in Philadelphia and in Michigan. She wrote many anti-slavery pieces and supported the free produce mo movement. Um, in the northern states, um, she only bought things cultivated in the northern states, boycotting the slave south. So it was a principle that didn't that was not without cost. She most sugar for baking and cotton for dresses came from the south, and so this was a big deal to do that boycott. And it it's an effective one. Women have affected change through boycotts for centuries. She was also a poet, 
And her first literary effort was published at 18, and it was called The Slave Ship. And it was um, published in, a, in Casket, a magazine, and won a prize. Um, she also was joined the editorial staff um, in Benjamin Lundy's magazine, Genius of Universal Emancipation. And she wrote also for The Liberator. She introduced one of the most famous abolitionist m- images, the kneeling female slave with the slogan, Am I not a woman and a sister? The idea was taken from the depiction of a male slave in the seal of the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade designed by pottery maker and English abolitionist Josiah Wedgwood. William Lloyd Garrison later adopted the symbol and slogan to head the, quote, ladies department of the liberator. Lucretia Mott, who I've talked about already, was also a Quaker. She was a fierce advocate of abolitionism and women's rights, and she was scorned by her fellow Quakers who thought she was too radical for a woman. Quakers have always been amenable to women teachers, women preachers, uh, women voicing their opinions and getting an education, but even within that sphere, she was considered too radical. Um, she also boycotted the products of slave labor, and her husband James even exited the cotton trade in 1830 because she and James had become such strong advocates for abolition. That brings me to the last set of women that I want to talk about for this episode. Sarah and Angelina Grimke. The Grimke sisters were two of the most important pioneers in both the abolitionist and feminist movements of the 19th century. They were born into a wealthy slaveholding family in South Carolina, and that might make them seem like unlikely candidates to be such pioneers. But with even despite their life of privilege in the highly patriarchal South, where women were taught to be proper and gracious homemakers, These two became political radicals. They had minds of their own from the very beginning. They, their intellectual journey led them to the Quakers, first and foremost. They were impressed with the Quaker idea that men and women are equal in the inner light. Though the Quakers had an important influence on both sisters, they eventually became disillusioned with the prejudice against blacks within the Quaker community, similar to what we saw about Lucretia Mott. She was too radical. here. Sarah and Angelina Grimke found themselves too radical for the Quaker views. They defied the wishes of their Quaker community, um, which didn't think it was seemly for women to make make opinions public with their support of abolitionism. They were lecturers for the abolitionist cause. They they toured New England in the 1830s, um, giving those speeches, they offered a unique perspective because they were former slave owners. They acquired a large following among women, and it's estimated that over 40,000 people heard them speak. Their lecturing helped create respect for and attention to the rights of women, but they were viciously attacked for being public speakers, since doing so was considered improper. Ministers even vilified them from the pulpit accusing them of not following their, quote, appropriate duties, as stated in the New Testament. They kept going on, though. The censure only spurred the sisters to defend the rights of women in a series of essays. During their years of public activity, 
their writings made significant contributions to the abolitionist movement. They participated in the different conventions of anti-slavery women. They, their writings were so crucial. I'm not going to go into it so far, but this, these are women you want to look up. These are women you want to be like. These are women that are inspiring. And they served as role models for younger women activists who would follow, including Abby Kelly, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucy Stone, and Susan B. Anthony. The Graham Key sisters, I always talk about Gerda Lerner because she is the founder of women's history, women's studies, and she has explored the creation and the evolution of the patriarchy in our world. She, she had a huge focus on the Grim Key sisters and has written books about them. They are crucial in this intersectional movement of abolition and feminism. These two movements come together in a way that movements today should also come together, and they serve as, as a really important uh, archetype that we should follow. And so I hope that some of these people that I've shared with you today are inspirational, and I hope that you can see how important the abolitionist movement was to the women's rights movement in America. And I don't say that to, to endorse white women making advances on the shoulders of people of color. On the other hand, I think it's important to see that women had compassion for other human beings, and through that, they found their own self-confidence and a power within themselves. And it's in this kind of same vein that women today can continue to make a difference. And so, um, as always, I can't wait to see you for our next episode. Um, and remember, women's place is wherever she wants to be. Don't let these haters bring you down, just like they didn't bring the Grimke sisters down or any of their counterparts. Stand strong, and um, I'll see you next time. <laughs>